Ladies and gentlemen, now it's too late with Alan Mosley. Guys, welcome back for another episode of It's Too Late. I am your host, Alan Mosley, joined again this week by the number one producer in late night, Sherry Voluntary. Sherry, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. You feeling all right? You doing good? Yeah, yeah, doing great. Nice day, so doing good. Yeah, it is, it is a nice day. So the Ice Age is already over. <laughs> so, so like this past weekend, I literally couldn't go anywhere and couldn't order any food because the, it's crazy. I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you this. I went out to go clear the, like the, the snow and ice off of Anna Kay's car. And first, you know, under the cars, you can still see the pavement because the car hasn't moved. So mm -hmm. I actually measured it. I swear to God, I've lived in Tennessee almost my whole life. I don't think I've, we've ever had more than maybe four inches like if we had four inches of snow that was a monumental for us right in in what in middle tennessee yeah. in middle tennessee in southern middle tennessee at that yeah it was it was right at about nine Ooh, can you believe a lot. that that's a yeah. lot it it is a lot so it's gone now and it was and, and now fast forward to today it was 70 degrees <laughs> because that's that's how we roll down here in tennessee <laughs> Tennessee weather, <laughs> but and and we were talking about earlier in the show that you know Tennessee weather being what it is, we're we're almost to March, and by the time you get to like March, April, early May, right. you could still theoretically have like a little bit of an ice storm. You could also have eighty-five degree weather. Right. Like it's we've already moved on psychologically to to the great yeah. dawn of spring. It's like like a hormonal woman, the weather in Tennessee. Yes, I know. Tennessee is like a hormonal woman, like Sherry. <laughs> exactly. You, you've heard it here first. <laughs> Guys, I'll tell you another thing that's coming up. It's the live show for 2021. It's the It's Too Late live show. That's March 20th. That's less than a month away. Ah, uh, I know. Wow. A month away. Oh, it's it's getting close to that time where where now I have to actually do the show. Yeah, I think we should start planning it. <laughs> <laughs> we should start playing the show now. Guys, that's March 20th, but you got to get tickets because space is limited. They're only $10. We did this last year for, for the episode 100. Episode 100 is too late. We had such a great time. There were so many awesome, like-minded, liberty-loving people there. We all had a great time. you got to come to March 20th for the It's Too Late 2021 live show. You can get your tickets. We have an Eventbrite page for it. We're not going to be operating a door, by the way. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on a quick little tangent just here really quick. So we're not operating a door. And the, re and the key reason we're not operating a door is we're recording a program. It's, it's a live show. We're actually going to do, we're going to set up, Correct. we're going to do the whole thing. It will, it'll be episode 150 about that time. And so we can't have people just strolling in and out of the studio <laughs> when we're recording. So, I mean, it's, it's not that big of a studio. Yeah. So you'll hear it. It'll be a big distraction. So, I mean, like we're locking you guys in. The gates are locked. You are stuck in there. Like, imagine this, guys. You pay me $10, and then I tie you to a chair, and you have to watch It's Too Late with Alan Mosley for, like, an hour. <laughs> you need one of those little cartoon villain mustaches. Yeah, I know. Like, well, I mean, and now that I've sold it like that, like, how could anyone say no? But it's going to be great. There's going to be a lot of fun people there. But the reason I was going to go on a tangent is, is we also have a live musical. 
And we had a live musical guest for episode 100. We have a new musical guest for episode 150. And so same thing goes for the, for the band and their fans as as fans of our show is you got to get your tickets ahead of time because space is limited and we're not operating a door. That's just dims the brakes. So do it. Go to facebook.com slash TV. Click on events. There it is. You can also go to my website, alamosley.tv. Uh, speak. So now that we got our, our business out of the way, the gaff machine that is our new president, Joe Biden. <laughs> now, far be it for me, ladies and gentlemen, to accuse a guy who who famously publicly campaigned with a high-ranking member of the KKK to say something racist. <laughs> but you'll be surprised to know that that's exactly what he did. At his town hall in Milwaukee. Guys, take a look at this clip right A lot here. of people don't know how to register. Not everybody in the community, in the Hispanic and the African-American community, particularly in uh, uh, rural areas that are distant and or inner city districts know how to use, know how to get online to determine how to get in line for that COVID vaccination at the, at the Walgreens. <laughs> now, this is, this is what I'm, this is me trying to be as fair <laughs> and fair and honest as I can, balanced as I can possibly like be. Fox News over there. Yeah, like Fox News. I mean, you know me. Mm. Is I will I'll be willing to give you random lefty person the benefit of the doubt that that didn't come off the way he intended. Right. That he was he was trying to make a point about this whole you know equity of the vaccine rollout and 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 helping re- reach you know, uh, disproportionately affected communities and all that. I'll give you that if you're also willing to admit <laughs> that if if Donald Trump had said the exact words he just said, <laughs> you guys would have Yikes. never let the right-wing establishment hear the end of it. Tell me <laughs> I'm wrong about that. You you are not wrong. I mean, Trump said far less than that, and they were finding racism where it wasn't even at. So what are you going to do? Yeah, I, I love I love some of the lefties. Re- get that out of here. I love some of the lefties <laughs> who have admitted that, you know, we we spent the last four years talking about a fake racist, right. and we replaced him with a real one. <laughs> like leave it up to the Democratic Party. Am I right? Ah, oh, beautiful. It's a beautiful I, thing. I, I want to say really quick before we take our first commercial break. You know. In that clip, he 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 had that little line of you know they they don't know how to get online to get in line yeah. for vaccines, and you know in his mind he was probably thinking, hey, good one, Joe, that yeah, was a good hoo-ah. zinger. Go online to get in line. Right. It's just it's so the disconnect between where his his mushy Jello brain is and where <laughs> and where the rest of us are that he probably thought he really hit a home run in that moment, <laughs> but in reality he said something that. A little dicey, a little dicey, as as our friend Ben used to say. Um, but we don't we don't have a lot more time to him haul. We got to move on to meme of the week and viewer mail specifically because we have a guest tonight. We have a guest, the senior education fellow for the Foundation of Economic Education Fee. That is Carrie McDonald. Is going to be our guest later on the show this evening. So we're going to move on to the meme of the week and the viewer mail. We'll be back right after this.
Hey, uh, hey, Sherry. Yes? What time is it? Meme of the week. Joe Biden checking to see if you know how to use the internet. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> pretty good. You know, if you don't want us making fun of your gaffes, then just don't say overtly racist things. Right. Just, just don't do it. Right. Just don't. Um, you know what? Well, we're we're already out of time. Let's go ahead and answer some viewer mail. All right. It's time for viewer mail. <laughs> Andrew Avery writes, "Dear Alan and Sherry, why did they throw me out of the corporate professional behavior mandatory training just for asking if harass was one word or two?" <laughs> Racy. This, this was this is particularly risque for Andrew, I think. Yes, correct. I, yeah, I, I feel like I feel like he feels like he can push the envelope a little bit. <laughs> We've we have done a poor job of communicating to Andrew what he can and can't get away with. Yeah. So this yeah. is this is Andrew. This is our fault. <laughs> uh, Celeste Anis writes, "Dear Alan and Sherry, who who was your favorite childhood pet?" Jerry, what was your favorite childhood pet? I'm going to go with my little sister. <laughs> I'm sure she appreciates that. Yeah. I mean, she used to be my favorite. Used to be. Oh, used to be. <laughs> used to be. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to pick an actual, like, household pet animal and not a human being. <laughs> um, so we had this cat named Bobby. And Bobby was a black cat. And he was... Bobby, give me a freaking break. I didn't name him, okay? I didn't name him. Um, and he was a chatty cat. Chatty exactly. cats are the best. Yes. They really are. And this is actually something that's really interesting. Did you know that, so scientists have said that cats meow, they don't go out in, through the wild and meow at each other. They meow specifically to humans because they're trying to communicate with you. Right. It's so sweet. I love it when they talk, have little conversations. This has become a very warm and fuzzy episode. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> Adam Sokosin writes, Dear Alan and Sherry, car, truck, or SUV? Sherry, car, truck, or SUV? I'm going to say SUV. Why an SUV? You know, I got kids and crap, and I don't know. I, I like to, I like, I like a truck, <laughs> but I want my stuff covered and toting people around and stuff. It works out. Kids and crap. Yeah, kids and crap. Why do you hate the environment? <laughs> <laughs> I have a no, list. Just, no, 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 no. I'm just going to stop you right there. Your joker <laughs> laugh following that that question is all the audience needs to know. Uh, Clay Davis writes, Dear Alan and Sherry, is space exploration better off in NASA's hands or Elon Musk's? Hmm. I, I mean, the private sector would be the best place for it. But 
So I'm not going to be a pedant and try to give an answer that Clay didn't offer. It was one or the other. So out of out of those Elon two, Musk. out of those two, the answer is Elon Musk. Yeah. NASA should just not exist. Right. Um, however, I also just want to take this token opportunity to point out that Elon Musk has received like tons of subsidies. He's he's a welfare whore, just right. like lots of corporatists are. And and he's taken tons of government contracts and subsidies for batteries and electric vehicles and stuff. So miss me with that worshiping Elon Musk private business type stuff. Uh, <laughs> Rachel Watson Killery writes, Dear Alan and Sherry, would you rather lose electricity in the winter or the summer? Oh, I'm going to go with the summer because I hate to be cold. That's it. You 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 rather lose electricity in the summer because you hate to be cold. Yeah. Okay. Wait, what? I'd rather burst into flames. Okay. So this is very similar to a question that we had like a week or two ago where someone asked, would you rather be too hot or too cold? Right. So I would rather lose electricity in the winter because you can always like build a fire or get warm. Whereas... I can't, like, I got to have an air-conditioned environment. <laughs> I got to. You're like, tender. Yeah, I got to, I got to have, it's got to just, it's got to just be 72. <laughs> on, a, on a random side note, the commercial before this segment is the 10th Amendment Center commercial. And I noticed <clears throat> during the break that Michael Bolden had posted on social media a picture of, like, the sunny outdoor LA that he's currently mm. walking around in. Correct. And a picture of his, a screenshot of his phone where it's 78. And he and he says, if only it were just a few degrees cooler. <laughs> Shut up, Bolden. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so last one. Uh, Lyle Dario writes, Dear Alan and Sherry, do you gamble? Sherry, do you gamble? Uh, only a little bit. I'm kind of cheap, but I have started playing Texas Hold'em and in tournaments, and you have to buy in. So, yeah. So there, oh, so you're getting into the whole Texas Hold'em thing. A little bit. That's fair. Yeah, you know, I've told people like so. I went to college in the early two thousands, and that was like when Texas Hold'em. Uh, what was the the World Series of Poker? The yeah. World Series of Poker was like on ESPN all the time. Like that was mm -hmm. that was it was kind of like it was a craze. It was a fad, right? And so all the dudes, all the bros in the dorms were playing Texas Hold'em, and and I got into that a little bit. And it, it was fun. Of course, we were all broke college students. You know, we're right. playing with change. You know, right? <laughs> and um. You know, it was fun and all that, but, you know, despite it being entertaining, I didn't really get into it like this is something I want to pursue. Sure. Um, I have done some sports gambling. Uh, I haven't actually for our friends at the IRS, but I have done some sports gambling. <laughs> I used to write the column for Sports Ball, the uh, Allen's Sunken Cost Money Pit, where right. I would give my, my picks for that week. Um, I like sports betting more because, you know, like I give the analogy of if you're playing the slots, you're pulling the lever, right? And and it's it's really just it really just boils down to how much money do you feel like losing before you quit? Right. No strategy, <laughs> yeah. At all. Whereas with sports betting, you're making an educated guess. Right. It's not just of course things can happen. Of course right. the star QB can break his arm. Of course they can have a bunch of turnovers and the ball. You know you can kick a field goal and the ball hits the upright. Of course things can happen. But in general, you at least have data to inform your selection right as opposed to it being pure chance so um sports gambling is uh i've enjoyed that i've had a lot of success with that except for i've never won any money irs right. i've never won any money doing it just one uh, good feelings yeah 
Just just good. I've just one good feeling. <laughs> that's it's exactly right. Um, all right. Well, we're already out of time, so we we do have some more viewer mail, but we don't have time to get to it, which is a rarity for us. We usually right. answer all of viewer mail, but we can't answer all the viewer mail this week because we have a classy. We have an we have a classy awesome guest. Yeah. We will be right back after this break with Carrie McDonald from B. Don't go away. Your ad could be playing right now, reaching thousands of potential customers. Sadly, it's not, but it could be. Find out how to be an advertised sponsor for It's Too Late with Alan Mosley. Email us at info at alanmosley.tv. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Welcome back. Our guest this evening is a senior education fellow at FEE. That's the Foundation of Economic Education, as well as the author of Unschooled, Raising Curious, Well-Educated Children Outside of the Conventional Classroom. She's also an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and a regular Forbes contributor. Carrie McDonald, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you, Alan. Thanks for having me. Well, I was telling you right before we went on that I'm, I, we haven't had as many guests as I would like, and I'm, I'm very appreciative of you taking the time to, to be with us because education, uh, it's funny we had a we had an AMA on this program, and a lot of a lot of people that are in our, our audience are are very aware of the Fed, the Federal Reserve, and that's a lot of times that's their number one hot topic issue of if I had a magic wand and I could affect change, I would target the Fed, and 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 while I believe that's I understand that, and I believe that that's a very important issue. I often tell people, I'll tell you what, I'll break with you on this one thing. My biggest issue is education. I feel like if we if we had more educational opportunities outside of the purview of government schools, then we might see a lot of positive change affected in a lot of other areas unrelated to to education. It could be involved with Fed. It could be involved with government spending. A, a lot of civics and policy issues might be positively affected if you had more independent educational opportunities. Does, does that sort of ring a bell with you? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the silver linings, if there is any, uh, to come out of the last year, is that more parents are getting a much closer look at what's happening in their children's schools, in particular uh, government schools, and realizing that they may not like what they're seeing. Uh, I think parents last spring, uh, when the school shutdowns first began, and many classrooms, most classrooms went uh, remote, families for the first time in many cases had a chance to really see the kinds of curriculum that their kids were getting in these schools. Uh, you know, even anecdotally, I heard from parents saying, gosh, you know, I heard this teacher reading a book to the class that my child had read to herself two years prior. Uh, and so they really started to get a closer look at what was happening and in many cases not liking what they saw. And then I think the pandemic response has really uh, opened up so many more opportunities for parents to look elsewhere, to exit the government schooling system, to see, you know, in, in full color, the influence of the teachers unions on, uh, on government schools. Um, there's been an exodus of parents uh, removing their children from government schools for private education, both private schools, parochial schools and homeschooling across the country. 
Uh, and so I think these are sort of the trends that will continue, hopefully, uh, even after the shutdowns, lockdowns and the pandemic response ends. Well, let, let me circle back here um, so for folks that are not as familiar with you as they should be. So I've I've heard a great amount of content from you that sort of focuses on identifying the passions of children and, and sort of using that as, as a guide towards their education rather than the compulsory model of government schools. So so first things first, uh, tell our audience a little bit about yourself, Carrie McDonald, and, and how education and alternatives like homeschooling and unschooling became your passion. Yeah. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm a, the senior education fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education, which is the country's oldest free market libertarian think tank founded in 1946. This is our 75th year anniversary. Uh, and, you know, really focus on um, kind of the libertarian response to policy and painting the vision of the principles for a free society, including limited government, free markets, individual liberty uh, and peace. Um, so, you know, my pathway specifically toward education and, and alternatives to school um, and private education as well really began when I was in college. So I went to K-12 public schools and uh, hadn't really thought much about education, went to college, was an economics major, um, but became increasingly interested in education from the lens of economics, really in seeing at the time, this was in the late 1990s, how few choices parents had uh, around their children's education. I mean, we think still uh, a lot of choices are limited for families, and luckily the school choice movement has grown substantially in recent years and has really taken off over the past year. Um, but there, but there was even few less choice really a couple of decades ago, and that was striking to me. You know, sort of lo looking at this government monopoly system of compulsory schooling. Uh, so I started taking more of an active interest in education and took an education class my senior year in college and had a chance to shadow a homeschooling family. Um, and homeschooling was completely new to me. This was, again, in the late 1990s. Homeschooling had just become legally recognized in all 50 states just a few years prior by the mid-1990s. So it was still a relatively new phenomenon, definitely not the kind of mainstream uh, option that it has become. And I remember walking into this family's kitchen for the first time to shadow them for the semester and being completely captivated by what I saw, just this curious child, uh, at the time she was a second grader, um, articulate, interesting, creative, um, authentic socialization into the people, places, and things of her community, you know, really uh, learning from the people around her uh, in an authentic way. And it was in stark contrast to that same semester when I was doing a student teaching practicum at a local public elementary school, the same age kids, second graders. And really now for the first time in black and white, I had seen this contrast between the kind of government schooling, compulsory coercive system that I had gone through, that most of us have gone through, mm -hmm. and a completely other way of being educated, uh, this alternative to school, not replicating school at home, but really um, uh, this kind of child-centered, child-directed um, approach to education that was not focused on sort of the conformity and standardization and age segregation and all of those, uh, you know, ideas that we associate with 
compulsory schooling. So I was hooked. And then that triggered my further interest in education. I went to graduate school in education policy at Harvard. Um, at the time, if you were interested in anything kind of beyond conventional schooling, the place for you was charter schools, which were relatively new at the time, the turn of the millennium. Mm -hmm. uh, so I spent some time, you know, working with public policy institutes on expanding charter schools and kind of the, the emergent school choice movement. Um, and then, you know, always knew that for my own children, that we would be doing something likely different than compulsory schooling just from that experience. So that when I became a, a mom and was really looking for education options for my own children, um, we're here in Boston, Massachusetts. And I realized that, you know, if I had sent them to school in, in this case, even a, a private school, that their learning would contract, that they would end up spending their days with the same age segregated group of kids and the same static handful of teachers in the same building every day, uh, as opposed to really this immersive learning experience that they had learning uh, in and through the city and all of the kind of classes and experiences and mentors um, that they were, you know, developing relationships with. And so it really seemed like uh, in order to expand their learning and provide them with this uh, robust, dynamic education, that it would be best to do that, at least for our family, outside of a conventional classroom. Now, I, I want to expound upon uh, something you said a, a little bit before we do a deep dive into sort of the, the age of COVID. Uh, so you had said, uh, remind me, it was 1999 that was all 50 states were recognized for homeschooling? No, so the all homeschooling became legally recognized okay. in all fifty states by the mid nineteen nineties. Okay, okay. Um, it had there were various levels of legalization prior to that. Uh, in some cases, states had you know it was illegal to homeschool. In other cases, it was just not well defined legally. Okay. So by the mid nineteen nineties, all of those. Um, wrinkles were ironed out and it was legally recognized that you uh, as parents were able to homeschool your children uh, in all 50 states. So, I mean, that's, you know, historically, I mean, that's not even a, a breath ago that, that that even becomes more nationally recognized. So, so before we do that deep dive into the age of COVID, uh, talk to us a little bit about sort of what trajectory homeschooling and the, cho the school choice movement was on you know, prior to, say, 2020? Was was homeschooling already sort of naturally growing and becoming more mainstream? Yeah, so the modern homeschooling movement um, really began in earnest uh, in the late 60s, early 1970s, and it really came from the progressive left, from the hippie communes, uh, as part of kind of the rebellious era of the 1960s, uh, parents just not sending their children to school and teaching them on these, uh, in these you know, co-op communities. And then uh, throughout the 1980s, it expands, the modern homeschooling movement expands mostly in that case through um, the religious right, focusing on pulling their children out of schools for homeschooling. And, and it was really uh, the conservative right that provided kind of the legal infrastructure and momentum um, to really fully recognize homeschooling rights, again, that happened fully by the mid-1990s. 
1999 was the first year that the U.S. government began tracking homeschoolers in the uh, federal database. They counted 850,000 homeschoolers that year. Um, just before the pandemic, we were just under 2 million homeschoolers. Again, these numbers are very likely undercounted because uh, homeschoolers, I think, notoriously um, you know, tend not to be included or are not choose to be included in some of these government surveys, but somewhere around two, uh, you know, two million. Other estimates suggest closer to two and a half million. But with the advent of the pandemic um, and the, specifically the school shutdowns, the number of home, independent homeschoolers in the U.S. has more than doubled to nearly five million. Uh, so just in really, you know, a ten month period. Um, from March to the fall, there were, um, you know, close to 5 million students who were pulled from their public schools or not enrolled in the first place in kindergartens uh, and were registered as independent homeschoolers. So they had no connection to their school or to their district. Uh, in that period of time, you also saw a real increase in support for school choice mechanisms. Um, so Real Clear Opinion Research conducted a survey in the fall where they found that the support for school choice among parents, among respondents of the survey, increased 10% just from April to October uh, to about 77% of survey respondents saying that they supported school choice policies. And in fact, you're now seeing that um, support turn into action legislation in a lot of states pushing for more of these school choice policies, such as education savings accounts, tax credit scholarship programs, vouchers, and so on. So so fast forwarding a little bit to, to the pandemic age that we've been in. So you had the spring 2020 semester and then uh, fall 2020 and then and then now into the spring 2020, uh, 2021 uh, semester, school semesters. Uh, you have a lot of schools closed to in-person instructions, a lot of schools only offering remote learning or some combination of the two. Um, taking that another way, has this been the largest scale sort of free trial for homeschooling that a lot of parents have ever enjoyed? Uh, you know, certainly since before the advent of the compulsory schooling statutes that we uh, that were implemented in the mid 19th century, that's the case. Um, just record numbers of homeschoolers uh, over the past year. I, um, you know, many of these families will be temporary. I think once things get back to normal and schools reopen fully for in-person learning, many of these nearly 5 million independent homeschoolers will head back into a conventional classroom, but not all of them. Um, you know, I think for a lot of families, this was the catalyst they needed to try something else. You know, I heard from a lot of families, particularly in the during the spring school shutdowns that said, gosh, I've always wanted to try independent homeschooling, but I lacked that trigger. I lacked that, you know, momentum to get going. And this really provided that opportunity. And I've um, pulled my kid from their district school and were, you know, pursuing their interests and gathering online resources and really cultivating, curating a, a curriculum experience for them that makes sense and that's individualized and it's working great. And so I think that's really been a discovery for a lot of families. And one of the things that I've said all along, particularly as these opinion uh, polls that began last April and, and, and sort of continued over the 
following subsequent months with um, Ed Choice running polls, USA Today, Ipsos polls, Real Clear Opinion Research polls showing parental support for homeschooling had increased since the start of the pandemic response. Um, I said, gosh, if you think this is good, <laughs> if homeschooling under these conditions is appealing to you, just wait until communities really get back to normal. Uh, homeschooling is so much better. I know, you know, here where I am in the Northeast, our uh, libraries are still closed in many cases for in-person browsing. Museums in Boston just reopened uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so, you know, it's still been very much locked down uh, in many parts of the country and not at all kind of that immersive learning experience that homeschoolers are, are accustomed to. So if, if homeschooling is okay during the pandemic and it's, you know, parents think it's going well uh, or as well as can be expected, just wait until things open up and you can finally... Uh, get back into your communities again in a meaningful way. Well, we'll uh, we'll wrap with this before we take our first commercial break. I think, you know, they they say, uh, what's the phrase that uh, necessity breeds innovation? That I think a lot of a lot of parents kind of had the attitude of, well, I'm not I'm not content with with my local schools or public education, but I can't. I just can't homeschool. Maybe they they work or they they personally feel inadequate. That oh, I'm I'm not a professor, therefore I can't teach my kids. Or you know, let let the experts be the ones that are in charge of education because that's that's just not my cup of tea. Or or, or you know, or some level of being intimidated by the whole process. But of course, you know. Then again, the future is now. It's I, I feel like with practically anything, technologically speaking or otherwise, it's it's never been easier to do more things oneself. And so, do you feel like that? Kind of again, kind of circling back to the silver linings here is that the silver lining being that since so many parents had they had no option, they were forced to figure out a way to, you know, go to the schools in the afternoons, pick up their workbooks, log their kids into, you know, to some website or another because the school was only offering remote learning. And then and then maybe the the silver lining here being is that they've they've gotten that in-person sort of their own in-person instruction of, hey, I can do this. This this isn't as hard as I thought it was, or or maybe in, in the year 2000, this would have been impossible, but in the year 2020, 2021, all of a sudden, oh, you know, I can do this after all. I think that's right. I think one of the things that the pandemic response has done is really smashed the stereotypes of homeschooling. Um, you know, so much of these stereotypes were really a caricature of homeschooling that never really existed. Uh, this idea of, you know, uh, a parent, typically a mom, sitting around a kitchen table with a whole curriculum and and kids, um, you know, dutifully replicating <laughs> school at home and sure. going through the motions of, of, you know, this kind of one room schoolhouse in your kitchen, you know, was was much more the exception than the rule in homeschooling circles for decades. Uh, and so I think most families really started to realize that. And as you say, it's um, certainly true with all of the technological advancements that have occurred. There are so many online learning resources. I have an, uh, a blog post up at the Cato Institute that I put up shortly after the school shutdowns last spring, looking at all of the incredible free online learning resources available to families. Um, you know, one of the gold standards would be Khan Academy, which is kind of the leader in online video-based tutorials. They're known particularly for their math videos. It's used in many schools throughout the country. It's all, again, free on a whole, you know, panoply of topics. 
uh, they really boosted a lot of their curriculum offerings, providing kind of lesson plans for the day and, uh, you know, different strategies for making learning work. So I think families discovered that there are these incredible, either free or in some cases, low cost learning resources. So it's not up to the parents to be sitting around the kitchen table teaching their kids. Um, you know, many of us as homeschooling parents, both, you know, our both spouses will work. You have a lot of single parents that uh, also homeschool and they, they do it because they have these uh, access to these resources and these online learning um, opportunities, as well as, of course, in normal times, access to classes and mentors and workshops and so forth in the broader community. On that note, guys, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We will be right back with more from Carrie McDonald right after this. Don't go away. If you're enjoying tonight's show, consider supporting the program by becoming a member of our Patreon. That's over at patreon.com slash Alan Mosley. Guys, welcome back to the show. We're back here again with Carrie McDonald from Fee. Um, Carrie, so we were talking just there in between the break. Um, kind of given the state's sort of obsession with controlling education, why do you think that they've been so slow to get kids back in school? Yeah, I mean, I think um, many of the signs point to the influence of teachers unions. So there's been several studies done over the fall, uh, beginning with some study done by Corey DeAngelis at the Reason Foundation, and then mm -hmm. a further study done by Brown, Brown University researchers finding the same thing, that uh, in areas where teacher union influence was the strongest, uh, schools were less likely, district schools were less likely to open for in-person learning than in areas than in districts where you had uh, lower influence of the teachers unions. And that's really played out. It's, it's really not been about science. It's not been about uh, COVID cases or deaths. It's really the influence and strength of teachers unions in those areas. Interestingly, um, as a side, the Brown University study also found that competition with private schools played a big role in school reopenings as well. So teacher union strength was certainly the biggest indicator, but they, the researchers also found that in counties that had a large percentage of Catholic schools mm -hmm. uh, and private schools in general, Catholic schools in particular, have been more likely to open for in-person learning than district schools. Uh, in those counties with that large percentage of Catholic schools, district schools were more likely to reopen for in-person learning simply to compete. And we know this from school choice more broadly, that competition um, from private schools, from private education, really does uh, cause district schools to up their game. Well, so I, I kind of want to circle back a little bit because there's there's a term that we've used on the program that that I haven't point blank asked you for a definition of. So so for people that are unfamiliar, what is unschooling? Yeah, so in my book, I define unschooling as uh, not replicating school at home. So if we think of kind of traditional, again, stereotypes of homeschooling, it would be simply taking the kind of curriculum and expectations and grade levels and 
um, testing and all of that that we would experience in a conventional school and simply transplanting it into one's home. And in the unschooling book, I really try to say, you know, schooling is one method of education, but it's not the only one. And it might not be the preferred one for the realities of the 21st century, as again, we mentioned earlier, just the um, technological innovation and all of the knowledge and, and resources at our fingertips um, makes for, you know, a model of education that's much more dynamic um, to be more preferable for today's young people. And so I really, you know, use unschooling as sort of being able to separate education from schooling, regardless of where that schooling takes place, whether it's in a conventional classroom or in one's home, and to see education as much broader uh, than just schooling. Um, and again, I think technology really makes that possible. One of the other things that I uh, am really my motivation in writing the unschooled book was also to highlight the education entrepreneurs that have been building these alternatives to school that focus on self-directed education, passion-driven learning, really focused on uh, encouraging young people to find their passion and purpose um, and not sort of be caught in this standardized learning model that we've seen. Um, and so I was able to you know, travel across the country and interview uh, many of these education entrepreneurs. In most cases, these were people who were former public school teachers who became so disillusioned by what they saw in the classroom that they left to create self-directed learning centers or homeschool resource centers or self-directed schools like the Sudbury model of schooling uh, that focuses on this kind of unschooling approach, um, really focuses on kind of passion-centered learning. So uh, that was really interesting as well. And then I was also able to interview alumni of this approach to learning and find out, you know, how, what it meant for them and what they're doing now. And um, in most cases, you know, really just positive experiences all around. Well, you mentioned entrepreneurship and in, when I think of entrepreneurship, you know, it's, it's sort of synonymous with individualism with, you know, with self-starter and, and critical thinking and that sort of thing. And I feel like that there's an impression that Education Inc. has sort of evolved away from teaching critical thinking, kind of the old storybook, you know, we teach how to learn, not, you know, not what to learn. People feel like that's not really true anymore in public schools, and they're mostly just memorizing facts. Do you feel like that there's a basis for that view? Well, I mean, I think since the passage of the No Child Left Behind legislation uh, at the turn of the millennium, there has been much more of a focus on kind of standardized learning. I mean, education, schooling was always very standardized and focused on conformity and obedience, but that's really accelerated over the last couple of decades um, where, you know, this kind of test-driven learning and uh, you know, one size fits all, fits all kind of core competency model across the country, you know, has really um, pushed us even further from any remnants of kind of individualized learning that may have existed prior to, uh, to the dawn of the 21st century. And I think that's where a lot of families are saying, wait a minute, this is even worse than it was when I went to school. <laughs> you know, there has to be a better way. Uh, and they're looking for these, for these alternatives. I will say, you know, one other thing, uh, um, that I think is an interesting tidbit on this entrepreneurship theme is that the um, person who wrote the foreword to my unschooled book is Dr. Peter Gray, who's a psychology professor at Boston College and an advocate for unschooling and self-directed education. He wrote a book called Free to Learn that digs into a lot of the uh, kind of 
evolutionary psychology and biology of, of this way of learning. Um, but he and one of his colleagues, Gina Riley, did a research study of grown unschoolers, again, people who learned outside of a conventional classroom in this more self-directed way that I'm describing. Uh, and he found you know, a lot of interesting um, discoveries about these grown unschoolers. But the one that I think is most interesting and relevant is that more than half of these grown unschoolers were working as entrepreneurs in adulthood uh, in careers that... Uh, were tied to interests that they developed in childhood or adolescence, and of course had the freedom and autonomy uh, to explore and to build upon. And I think that's just such a testament to not only the ways that conventional schooling can stifle creativity and imagination and entrepreneurship and an individual spirit, um, but also that when we can free our children from some of those uh, methods and models of learning, um, that we can really encourage all of that ingenuity uh, and human flourishing. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you kind of a, a salesmanship question here. So uh, our friend Brian Kaplan uh, was on the show uh, not too long ago, and we talked a little bit about social desirability bias, which is kind of like a uh, an explanation of how a lot of individuals can have very negative personal experiences with the public school system. And yet at the same time, a lot of those same people will still support funding and expansion of government schools kind of because they, they want there to be good schools. They know they're not, but they wish they, they wish there was. And, and, and my addendum to that is, is something I like to call the power of the status quo, which is, you know, a, a skeptic might be willing to excuse a, a great many failings of the system because it's just the way things are. And yet that same person will be sharply critical of educational alternatives like homeschooling for having even a single perceived failing. So how do you overcome that when you're trying to reach brand new audiences? Yeah, I mean, I, I think to your point around, you know, why do people still support government schooling when they know that there are so many failures that it's ballooned in expenditure um, over the last certainly half century uh, with lackluster results, in many cases, very poor results. Um, and I think a lot of it is like you're saying is that that they um, attach themselves to the status quo. Many of these, you know, taxpayers went to school and that's all they know. And so I think part of um, part of the issue is just explaining that there are other ways to learn that private education, broadly speaking, can be much more successful for young people as it is in all other areas of our lives. Um, you mentioned Corey DeAngelis earlier uh, at that you've talked with him before. Um, he's at the Reason Foundation. You know, he often talks about uh, linking kind of district schools to the, the analogy of grocery stores that imagine if you were assigned your kind of neighborhood grocery store that you had to shop in. Um, based on your zip code. And we would think that's preposterous. You know, we value our private grocery stores to deliver the kinds of uh, food services that we want. And yet we tolerate it every day in our communities with the district schooling uh, that is government monopoly, government run, government funded government controlled. Um, and so I think we just need to start really pushing a little bit, you know, pushing people to realize, look, government schooling isn't, um, isn't successful in many cases. It's extremely costly. We can do it much cheaper and better um, in the private sector as we can uh, with so much of our other parts of our lives. 
I do want to say really quickly, so we've had Connor Boyack on the program, a great disciple of John Taylor Gatto. We've had Brian Kaplan on the show, and now we've had the Carrie McDonald on the show. We have not had Corey DeAngelis on the show. So, Corey, and we've, by the way, I've sent Corey a message. So, Corey, if you're listening, Carrie says she's going to write a hit piece about you. If you don't answer me and come on, it's too late. Oh, yeah, no, Corey's great. Uh, and, and really one of the leading lights in terms of advocating for school choice uh, across the country and, and certainly uh, education alternatives as well. Well, let me I'll, I'll ask you that, that one final final serious question, since you had mentioned uh, school choice. Um, I think something talking more to kind of to our our more libertarian or anarchist audience that we might have, not that any of those crazy people would listen to this show. But I think some of those people sometimes fall prey to this this idea that, well, I, I want government out of education and, and I don't want anything in between. Now, I'm not willing to take any steps between there and here. I want no state involvement in education. And, and so because of that, maybe they're a bit reluctant to become politically involved and, and support initiatives that move the needle in that direction. Cause I, I see Corey make posts all the time about, Oh, look at these different States that are, that are introducing bills to fund, you know, students instead of systems, as he puts it, you know, what, what do you say to people that, you know, ideologically they're on our team. They, 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 they approve of educational uh, choice and school choice and opportunities. And, and they believe that the parent is ultimately responsible for educating their child, but they, they balk at political movements that maybe are sort of half and halves that don't that don't necessarily defund school systems or attack the status quo so much as open up other choice. What what do you say to some more of our people that maybe sort of trip over their own feet in that regard? Yeah, it's such a great and important question. You know, I'm often asked if I could wave a magic wand in terms of education change, what would I do? And, and the first thing that I would do is eliminate all compulsory schooling statutes that, um, you know, it's these compulsory schooling laws that exist in every state and have since the mid 19th century that give the government the power to uh, over to have this oversight of education to define standards, including in private education in many states as well. So uh, if we eliminated compulsory schooling statutes, it would unleash you know a host of innovation all kinds of opportunities for education entrepreneurs and for families and for educators to build new learning models uh, separate from the state without that government intervention and control um, without the elimination of, of compulsory schooling statutes you know what do we do next uh, so the next best, best thing I would say and I think we've seen it very much so in the last year is parents need to exit the system themselves. Um, and we're seeing this again with the exodus from public schools in many states, um, public school enrollment really dropping dramatically uh, in the majority of U.S. states since the um, school shutdowns. And these parents are flocking to private education, uh, including uh, private and parochial schools that have been open for in-person learning or independent homeschooling, as I've mentioned. So that trend needs to continue, that if parents, that really the power rests with parents, that if they leave the system, uh, not only does that weaken the government system and the monopoly power of the government system, but it also prompts new entrepreneur, entrepreneurs to build new models um, that, you know, expand opportunity at all kinds of price levels and, and, and different um, philosophies of learning and so on. There's all kinds of learning models that could sprout with that kind of uh, 
exodus, continued exodus from government schooling. So then the final thing is, well, what do we do um, in the meantime, you know, or to kind of accelerate the uh, disruption of the government monopoly system? And I think that's where, you know, these school choice policies uh, come into play. And, you know, you're absolutely right that there can that there is um, some ambivalence about these school choice policies, because in in many cases they are still government funded. Um, but in most cases, it means that programs are not government run the way they are with existing district schooling. So if you think of a voucher program, it's taxpayer money, certainly but it's being used at private education um, facilities, schools or learning centers and that sort of thing. Uh, the same thing with education savings accounts that are similar to vouchers, although they have a much more expansive definition of education. So it's not just schooling, which is what I like. Uh, it could include tutoring. It could include books and computers and um, curriculum resources. Um, and it could include tuition at a private school, but it's much broader than just that. Uh, and then, you know, one thing that I think one one policy that I think libertarians would, could certainly appreciate is are these tax credit scholarship programs where the money never actually enters the coffers of the Department of Revenue uh, in your state that you simply get a tax credit uh, if you donate to one of these nonprofit scholarship granting organizations in your state that then uh, distributes these scholarships to typically income eligible students in that state to use at various um, private education programs. Uh, so, you know, from a libertarian perspective, the kind of the tax credit pro programs, uh, you know, are probably most appealing. Um, but in any case, all of these school choice mechanisms really do try to disrupt the, the current dominant monopoly system of government schooling um, in a way that provides much more uh, choice for families. Carrie, before we forget, where can people go to follow you and learn a little bit more about unschooling? Sure. Uh, visit me at b.org, the Foundation for Economic Education, mm -hmm. b.org slash Carrie, K-E-R-Y. Uh, that's my website. There you'll see. There you go. There are all, all the links to my social media accounts. Uh, you can sign up for my weekly newsletter at Fee and see all my latest articles. All right. We're going to get you out of here on this one. Now, everybody who watches this show knows that, of course, a hot dog is a sandwich. It's, it's, it's a meat between buns. That's a sandwich. But let me go a little bit further on hot dogs. Is a slice of bologna just a flat hot dog? <laughs> I don't know. I am stumped by that one. But I will say that the best hot dogs are the Fenway Franks uh, here at Fenway Park in Boston. Well, there you go. I, I'm I'm not going to argue with that. I I don't I don't want to get into a uh, a food war with such an awesome guest, Carrie McDonald. Thank you so much for being on the show. This this was wonderful. You'll have to come back and visit again. Oh, I'd love that. Thanks, Alan. Guys, we will be right back to finish up the show after this break. Don't go away. Hi guys, it's Alan here, and I want to take a moment to let you know about one of our supporters who started a new business. Laura Moreau sells 50 different health and wellness all-natural products, from weight loss, supplements, energy enhancers, body toning, longer and stronger hair, and so much more. Do you like coffee? Well, they even have coffee that'll help you drop some pounds. And who doesn't want to drop a few pounds? 
go check her out at her online store at lauramoreau.itworks.com today. That's lauramoreau.itworks.com. Like us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash TV. Follow me on Twitter. That's twitter.com at TV. Subscribe to our YouTube page. It's youtube.com slash TV. Guys, also don't forget, we're also on Odyssey. Don't just complain about big tech and then do nothing about it. Odyssey is a fantastic decentralized platform. You go to odyssey.com slash TV to see our whole library and every weekly episode. Um, thanks again so much to Carrie McDonald for a fantastic interview. Education is a is a, a passion of mine. It's, I know it's a passion of hers. I hope it's a passion of yours as well if you believe in liberty. Guys, thank you so much. We will see you next week.